turn to Judges chapter 19. We are going to finish our journey through Judges today. Let me pray for us as we turn to, to God's Word. Lord, we, we thank you for the last few months and what you have taught us through this uh, mysterious and strange book, but that is, has been so applicable to our lives today. And God, we pray that you uh, will continue to speak through it today as we, as we look at this, this last story. Lord, I pray that we would be open to hear whatever you have to say to us. Lord, I pray that we would be open to, um, to your word, to your comfort, to your challenge, towards your call to repentance, towards your call to hope. Um, Lord, I pray that you would speak your word to us today. Amen. So the last five chapters of the book of Judges tell two stories about the consequences of what happens to the people of Israel when they unhook themselves from God and his purposes for them. And throughout these two stories in these last five chapters, we hear this refrain over and over again, that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. God was meant to be the king of Israel. But the people rejected God's rule for their lives and in their nation. And we see in these stories that the results of that rejection of God as their king, that it was tragic. And last week, we, we focused on the story of one man, a man named Micah. And we saw in his life that, that Micah made all sorts of decisions that caused all sorts of problems for him. But the focus of our story last week was that uh, Micah was lost, that he was the product of the spiritual life of Israel at that time, which was, which was dead. There was no community of faith, no people who were teaching Micah and others around them how to worship God and how to love God. There's, there's no recordings in the book of Judges of the people of Israel celebrating the great feasts that God had given to them to remember the work of God in their history. And so Micah is lost. And so he, we see in his story that he is grasping for all sorts of different things in order to find meaning and purpose. We saw that at the end of that story that uh, everything that Micah had stored up for himself, all of the treasures that he had stored up for himself, that they're all lost in one night when this tri these men from the tribe of Dan come and steal all of his treasure, and then they go off and burn this entire, this entire town down. It's a really terrible story that we looked at last week, and it's the first of these two stories that tell us about what happens when people unhook themselves from God and his purposes for them. The last story that we're going to look at today is, is even worse than the story that we heard in the life of Micah. The story that we're going to hear today is a story about a lack of care and concern for neighbors and strangers. It's a story about sexual abuse and violence. It ends with civil war and then the leaders of Israel planning for kidnapping and rape. It's a horrifying story. It's a very disturbing story. And that's really the whole point of why it's at the very end of this book of judges. There is a purpose for why these two terrible stories were placed at the end of this book. 
The first two-thirds of the book of Judges was all told in chronological order. And we remember how the people of Israel continued to go through this cycle of knowing God, but then falling away from him, and then suffering the consequences of following away from him, having other countries that would come, other nations that would come and conquer them, and they would repent and turn back to God. And we see how through the first two-thirds of this book, there's this cycle that's repeated over and over again. But there are some clues in these last five chapters that these two stories weren't told in chronological order. They, they weren't told about the thing that happened next. Instead, they happened somewhere in the middle of all of these cycles of stories. And they are two exclamation points, deliberately placed at the end of the book to tell us the terrible consequences of living our lives apart from God and his purposes for us. In those days, there was no king in Israel And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So this last story covers three full chapters. And it's it's a very long story with a lot of interesting details. In the whole of the Old Testament, it's really one of the most detailed stories where we get to hear and and the the narrator tells us about the, the motivations of people and tells us lots of details that we often don't hear in the other stories of the Old Testament. And so I'm going to retell this story today because it's probably unfamiliar to you. Um, I promise you today our kids are not hearing this story in Sunday school. And you probably didn't hear this story in Sunday school either. It's not very familiar to most of us. So I'm going to, uh, for the first part of this sermon, retell this story. I'm going to break it up into five different scenes. And I'm going to briefly retell you what happens in those scenes and then give you a summary of what the point of that scene is. And I want to finish the sermon today by talking about two things that we need to learn from this story and the whole book of Judges So let's look at scene number one. I'm going to call it the Levite, his lady, and good hospitality. Let's read Judges chapter 9. I'm going to read the first four verses to introduce this. Judges 19 verse 1. In those days Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her father's house in Bethlehem, Judah. And after she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her father's house, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, prevailed on him to stay. So he remained with him for three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. In scene one, we are introduced to two main characters, a Levite from the hill country of Ephraim and his concubine. Now, in the previous story last week, we learned that there was a Levite living in the hill country of Ephraim who put himself out for hire. Do you remember that? He shows up at Micah's house. Micah says, hey, why don't you come and be my personal priest? And then the the men from the tribe of Dan, they come and say, hey, we've got a better deal for you. Why don't you come and be our priest? Well, at the end of the last chapter, at the end of chapter 18, there's an interesting revelation giving about that Levite. Judges chapter 18, verse 
30. It says, There the Danites set up for themselves the idols, and Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. I think if you were listening to this back in this day for the first time, it kind of would have been like, bum, bum, bum. This Levite was the grandson of Moses. Jonathan, the grandson of Moses. This is the first of these hints that these last two stories aren't in chronological order. The story of Samson comes 350 years or so after the beginning of the book, but chapter 18 involves a character named Jonathan, who is the grandson of Moses. Two generations after Moses gives the law, and and God miraculously delivers them from Egypt. Within two generations, the great lawgiver named Moses has a grandson named Jonathan who has completely forgotten the law, completely forgotten his calling as a priest and a Levite. And so then here in chapter 19 in our story for today, we have the story of a Levite from the hill country of Ephraim. The Levite in this story may be the same man. The very same Jonathan, the grandson of Moses. And if it's not him, the writer of the book of Judges wants us to make a connection between the two, as they're both Levites from the hill country of Ephraim. So we're introduced to this Levite who has a concubine. Now, a concubine was just kind of like a second-class wife. And this concubine has an affair of some kind. She runs away to her father's home. And the point here in just these first four verses that I read for you is to tell us that this man, this Levite, who is a priest, possibly the grandson of Moses, this man who's supposed to be living a holy, set-apart life, his life is in chaos. His life is a total mess. But he goes after this woman, and he finds her at her home in Judah, and the Levite and his lady reconcile together. And the father-in-law lavishes hospitality on him. They stay for a few days, and it's actually quite a humorous story over the course of like 10 or 15 verses where the Levite tries to leave, and the father-in-law is like, hey, have some lunch. And then they have some lunch, and they have some good time together, and the Levite tries to leave, and he says, you can't leave it dusk, you know, why don't you wait till tomorrow? And he does like like three or four times where they have this exchange where the Levite's trying to leave, but then the father-in-law, no, just stay a little bit longer, just stay a little bit longer. The summary of this scene, of scene one, is that the Levite's life is a mess. And this whole story of this hospitality of the father-in-law is to show the kindness and generosity of good hospitality. The father-in-law from Judah demonstrates kindness and generosity to him in a way that they are not going to experience in the scenes that are coming next. Scene two, no hospitality in Benjamin. I'm going to read verses 11 through 15. Finally, he escapes the hospitality of his father-in-law. In verse 11, it says, When they were near Jebus and the day was almost gone, The servant said to his master, Come, let's stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. And his master, the Levite, replied, No, we won't go into an alien city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah. 
And he added, come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on, and the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. And there they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them into his home for the night. So as they are on their way, the servant says, hey, let's stop here in this Canaanite city of the Jebusites. And Levite says, no, we need to go among our own people. We'll be cared for when we go to the city of our own people. And so they get to this city with their own people, the city of Gibeah, and they're not welcomed. They show up in the town square and no one welcomes them. No one extends hospitality to them until later in the story, an old man from Judah comes and he sees them in the square and he says, you cannot stay here tonight. This is not safe for you. He brings them into their home in order to try to protect them. The summary of scene two is that the expectation of the Levite was that he would be cared for by his own people, but when he gets there, they are ignored. For the last week, they have experienced this lavish hospitality from his father-in-law, but they get to the city of Benjamin and there's no welcome, no hospitality for them. In fact, far from hospitality. That night, they are going to experience violence. Scene three, a terrible, tragic night. Chapter 19, verses 22 through 26. While they were enjoying themselves, the Levite, the servant, the concubine, and this man from Judah who welcomed him into his house, while they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so that we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile, since this man is my guest. Don't do this disgraceful thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them to do to them whatever you wish. But to this man, don't do such a disgraceful thing. But the men would not listen to him, so the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night, and at dawn they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. This story is supposed to remind you of another story earlier in the Bible, in Genesis Does it remind you of another story? Lot and the people of Sodom. This story is almost exactly the same. The angels come to Lot. They visit him. He brings them in. They go into the city square and they think, we'll just spend the night here. Lot says, no, you can't do that. You must come in my house. This is not a safe place for you. And just like the men of Benjamin, the men of Sodom surround the house. They demand that Lot give his visitors over to them so they can sexually abuse them. And like the Levite who gave up his concubine, To the men of Benjamin, Lot gives up his two daughters to the men of Sodom. The people of Benjamin have become just like the people of Sodom. The summary of this scene is that the people of Israel have become just like the city of Sodom. Scene four, civil war. This is what happens the next morning. Verse 27. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, 
Let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and he cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, such a thing has never been seen or done. Not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Think about it. Consider it. Tell us what to do. The Levite responds to this terrible violence in the tribe of Benjamin in in this gruesome way. He cuts up the woman's body and he sends it to all the different tribes of Israel. Apparently with some note or with some messenger telling the people what happened in Benjamin. And the people are shocked. We see in the next chapter that seeing this woman's broken body seems to wake them up a bit. And they actually begin, we actually begin in the next chapter to see some glimmers of hope as Israel begins to respond to what they've seen. Chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. All the Israelites from Dan to Beersheba and from the land of Gilead came out as one man and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. The leaders of all the people of the tribes of Israel took their places in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 soldiers armed with swords. The Benjamites heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mitzpah. Then the Israelites said, tell us how this awful thing happened. So the Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, said, I and my concubine came to Gibeah in Benjamin to spend the night. During the night, the men of the Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house intending to kill me. They raped my concubine and she died. I took my concubine, cut her into pieces, and sent one piece to each region of Israel's inheritance because they committed this lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. Now all you Israelites speak up and give your verdict. And all the people rose as one man saying, none of us will go home. No, not none of us will return to his house. The people of Israel joined together. We cannot have this in the people of Israel. What has happened? What in the world have we done? How have we gotten to this place in the life of Israel where this could happen here? And eventually the the people of Israel, they take up arms against Benjamin and they eventually defeat the tribe of Benjamin. And so the summary of this story, scene four of civil war, is that this terrible image of this woman's cut up body and the story behind it, it wakes Israel up spiritually. They see her and they ask, what in the world have we done? We have to respond to this in some way. And so we have this bit of hope in chapter 20 that things are going to have a turn for the better. We see in chapter 20 that the people of Israel begin to seek God. They begin to ask God like they did at the very beginning. God, how can we fight the Benjamites? How can we stamp out this evil in our midst? But in chapter 21, all of that hope is dashed. We see in uh, chapter 21 that there's a problem. That after the defeat of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin has been left defeated in battle. And this is what we hear in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 21. The men of Israel had taken an oath at Mitzpah. Not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. The people went to Bethel, where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices and weeping bitterly. O Lord, the God of Israel, they cried, why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? And early the next day, the people built an altar and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. 
There's a problem. The tribe of Benjamin has been defeated. There are only a few men left, and we've made an oath that we won't give our daughters in marriage to the Benjamites. So what are we going to do? The tribe of Benjamin is going to go extinct. So what do we do? Long story is they come up with this scheme. And the scheme is basically for the men of Benjamin that are left to kidnap a bunch of girls at a festival and carry them off to be their wives. That's their plan. This is the second time in the book of Judges where there's been some oath that's been taken that then require people to break God's law in order to keep the oath. And this is how the whole book of Judges ends. This story right here. We're told about this terrible scheme that was planned and executed by the leaders of Israel. And then the book ends with the phrase reminding us that there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I want to talk to us today, Broadway Christian Church, about what this story and about what the entire book of Judges teaches about us, about our calling to faithfully live in the world that God has placed us in. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But friends, there is a king at Broadway Christian Church. His name is Jesus. And what is right in our eyes is to live in radical obedience to him and to love our neighbor with radical hospitality. As we finish our time here in Judges, I want us to consider a summary of what this final story in this whole book calls us to as a church And I've summarized that calling with these two phrases, radical obedience and radical hospitality. Living in the kingdom of God, living under the reality of Jesus as the king, requires us to consider both our vertical relationship with God as well as our horizontal relationship with our neighbors. Jesus said, The two great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Following Jesus, our King, requires us to consider these two relationships, our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationships with our neighbor. This first phrase, radical obedience, relates to how we are called to relate to God. And the second phrase, radical hospitality, tells us how we are to relate to our neighbor. I've suggested over the last few months that Judges was written primarily as a critique of God's people for their unfaithfulness, for their carelessness, for their lack of concern to follow the good law that God had given to them. By the way, I think in these last five chapters, uh, there are examples of all ten of the Ten Commandments that are broken. So a little deal, and you can't start now, you have to start later. If you find all 10 of them and you text them to me or email them to me, lunch is on me next week. Got it? So it's a little scavenger hunt for you to find all 10 commandments that are broken in these last five chapters. Don't look yet. Not yet. So as we look to this vertical relationship with God, the book of Judges reminds us of this calling to live in radical obedience to Jesus, our King. Now, the idea of obedience for some of us, maybe even for most of us, kind of leaves a bit of a sour taste in our mouth. 
Uh, Obedience kind of has a, a negative connotation. Obedience is related to the idea of obligation, a sense that sometimes we have to grit our teeth and do things that we would rather not do or not do things that we would rather do in order to be obedient, right? Or is it just me? Okay, all right. But I suggest to you that obedience to Jesus is different, or at least it's meant to be. You and I were made in the image of God. Your very first identity, who you are, is as a person made in God's image. That's the first thing that the Bible tells you about you, that you are made in his image. And so what that tells me is that underneath all of my thoughts, underneath all of my feelings, underneath all of my emotions and my desires, underneath all of that, at the deepest core of who I am, I want to be like God. And I want to relate to him on his terms, not on my own. That underneath my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions, and my desires, those are not bad things at all. God uses them to direct us to him. But underneath all of those things is this desire to submit myself to God's good and loving will and purpose in my life. There is a king at Broadway Christian Church. His name is Jesus. And what is right in our eyes is that we should live our lives in radical obedience to him and to love our neighbor with radical hospitality in the same, with the same kind of radical hospitality that he loved us. See, we believe that Jesus is a good king. He's the perfect king. He made us and he knows what is best for our life and he knows what it's best for our community. And so we are committed to fully surrender to his will and his way for us no matter what. And that does not always feel good. Sometimes it feels like death. In a sinful world, sometimes, maybe even a lot of times, obedience is hard and brings pain and suffering. But our king is such a good king that he trailblazed the pathway of obedience for us already. If you read through the story of Holy Week this week, you are going to come to the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew that in the next day, obedience to his father meant pain and suffering. He knows that betrayal is coming. He knows that his friends are about to abandon him. He knows about the insults and the whips and the nails of the cross that are coming. And he kneels in anguish in the garden and he says to his father, Father, not my will, but yours be done. This is Jesus trailblazing the way of obedience for us. This is the model of surrender and obedience to the good will of God. And God took the obedience of Jesus, and he saved the world with it. And he wants to take your obedience and do the same thing. He wants to take your radical obedience to him and use it for his good purposes in the world. The book of Judges, we learn that there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this book illustrates over and over again, and especially in these last two stories, the catastrophe that comes when human beings follow their own way and simply do what's right in their own eyes. But friends, there is a king at Broadway Christian Church. His name is Jesus. And what is right in our eyes is to live in radical obedience to him and in radical hospitality to our neighbor. 
So let's finish by talking about this radical hospitality to our neighbors in Jesus' name. This last story that we've heard about today, chapters 19 through 21, is framed all around stories about hospitality. It begins with the story of the lavish welcome and hospitality and kindness of the Levite's father-in-law to him and to his servant and to uh, the Levite's concubine. The second scene is a scene of neglected hospitality by the people of Benjamin while they were there in the city uh, courtyard and no one came to welcome them in. But then a man from Judah comes and he welcomes them into his home in order to protect them. And then there is this fourth scene of radical violence towards strangers by the tribe of Benjamin, who not only failed to extend hospitality and welcome, but commit violence against these strangers. And then the last story is a story where men actually leave their homes in order to do violence to strangers. Chapters 19 to 21 is a story about unraveling hospitality in the people of Israel. And it's interesting to me, and I think very important to note, that the book of Judges ends with an accounting of how the people of Israel practiced or did not practice love and care for their neighbor. The finishing note, the exclamation points at the end of the book of Judges is about Israel spiraling more and more away from God and how that caused them to badly treat their neighbors. We can't realize this story, read this story without recognizing that there's something to do with hospitality, about our care and kindness towards the stranger. How we care for people or not care for people is a reflection, a barometer, a measurement of our vertical relationship with God. The Greek word for hospitality, I love this word, it's philoxenia. The first word philo means love. The second word xenia means stranger. Hospitality is love for the stranger. It's a beautiful Greek word. And Jesus said that the entire law is summed up with these two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love your neighbor. And what the book of Judges seems to be saying here at the end is that when we fall further away from love for God, it causes us to treat our neighbor worse and worse. Or what's the reverse is also true. How we are loving neighbor is a reflection of our love for God. Radical hospitality to the stranger, radical kindness and goodness to our neighbor, this is the calling that we have as followers of King Jesus. I've, um, I want to finish with this, this one image that I haven't been able to shake all week from this story. And it's the image of, of the concubine on the next morning, laying with her hands on the threshold of the door. Let me read you what the text says. Chapter 20, verse 27. 19, verse 27, I'm sorry. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. It's a haunting image of her there, naked, bleeding, bruised, reaching out with her hands on the threshold of the door. 
Last week, I said that there are a lot of people in the world like Micah, people who are well-off, but sort of floating through life, some echo of God in the back of their minds, and they're grasping for all sorts of things to acquire meaning, to find meaning and purpose in their life. There are a lot of people out there like Micah, and there are also a lot of people out there like this woman. This woman was supposed to be safe. She was with one of Israel's priests, but he pushes her out the door in order to save himself. She was supposed to be safe. There are people in our world who have been neglected, abused, mistreated. They've been told by the world and sometimes by the church that they're worthless. There are people who have been ravaged by addictions, people who have lost their homes, refugees, immigrants, people who have been taken advantage of and tricked, people who have lost everything, their livelihoods, their hopes, their dignity. And I just have them, this image of them laying at our door with their hands stretched out, asking to find a place to be safe. There is a king at Broadway Christian Church, and his name is Jesus. And this is how good he is. Here's the kind of priest that he is for us. He's not like the priest who tossed this woman out the door. He's the priest who went through the door for us. He took on himself the abuse and the consequences of our sin. He took on our addictions and our failures. He took on our hurt and our pain. He went through the door and protected us from the enemy who was there, crouching at our door waiting to have us. He extended to you and to me the greatest show of radical hospitality that we can ever imagine by laying down his life for us. And that's why you can trust him with all of your obedience, because he extended this kind of hospitality to you and to me. Lord, we pray. We pray that we would be the kind of church that demonstrates in our lives radical obedience to you, complete surrender to your way and to your will because of the radical hospitality that you showed to us by taking the abuse and the consequences of our sin upon yourself, by being the priest who walked through the door to rescue and to save us. Lord, I pray that we would know that priest today and that we would know his goodness for us. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.